young pilgrim found himself depressed and weighed down with the weight of his guilt as he began his journey from the city of destruction heading towards the celestial city of heaven. After being convicted of his sinful state before God and his need to have his burden of sin removed, he was pointed by a man called Evangelist to the cross which was beyond the gate. And though he couldn't quite see the gate in the, in, the, in the distance, he began on towards it. But of course his journey wasn't straightforward, because it wasn't long until he met Mr. Worldly Wiseman, who distracted him off the path and told him, there's a better way for you to deal with your burden. Go to the village of morality. There you will meet Mr. Legality and Mr. Civility. Good works the way that you can be rid of your burden. But before he could get too far down that road, Evangelist brought him back onto the right place, and eventually he arrived, passing through the wicked gate towards the cross. And now laid out before him was a straight and a narrow road that would lead him all the way to Mount Zion, to the celestial city. And as long as Pilgrim kept on that straight road, he would be fine although he would come across many enemies along the way. Now, some of you may recognise that I have just summarised the opening chapters of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, that great novel. You may have noticed too that some of the vocabulary and the images that Bunyan uses in his novel are very similar to the ones that Jesus uses here in chapter 7, particularly verses 13 and 14. You see that? Let's read them again. Enter through the narrow gate, the wicked gate. For wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only few find it. You see, Jesus tells us that in real life, not in story, there are two paths, two roads that lead to two different destinations. And there's a choice, there's a choice to make on which road, which gate you will enter. For Jesus, life and destruction, what he calls these destinations. And, and for a first century Jew, there will be familiar terms. The Old Testament would use these words to describe these eternal destinies that people can face. We probably would most commonly call them heaven and hell. Jesus says, few find the way to life, many enter the way to destruction. And so the question you may be thinking is, which gate will we enter? On which road will we walk? Are we headed for destruction or life? And how do we know? As you read through these verses, we see, as we have done throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is claiming great truths. He's claiming to teach the truth, the only way to life. That is through the small gate, the narrow way. But he warns us, he's warning us here that there's a danger too that we can find ourselves on the wrong road, going through the wrong gate. And especially if we listen to the teachings of false prophets, the kind of real life versions of the Mr. Worldly Wise Man, those who claim truth themselves those who will tell you this is the way. 
But actually they deny Jesus. They deny the cross. And as you go on through the passage, Jesus raises two warnings in our passage, two issues. So firstly, he talks about false prophets, verses 15 to 20. And also he talks about false professions, verses 21 to 23. Both of these will lead us to destruction. So, watch out for false prophets. Jesus, as I've said, is coming towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount now. In in a way, he's summarising things. As I think Dan said last week, there are these two options presented for us. And he's warned, Jesus is warning us that there is this decision to make. And he's presenting these options. The right gate leads to life. The small and narrow way. Why? Why is that? Well, because Jesus says there is only one way to it. It's by believing in him. By obeying his teaching. Whereas the gate and the road that leads to destruction is wide and broad. Why? Because you can go on it by believing anything else. Every other teaching, every other philosophy, belief system, any other claim to truth and to salvation, but of course which is outside of Jesus Christ. Now all those listening to Jesus most probably will want to find life. They'll want life. Nobody in their right mind would really want destruction and death. But if of all the different voices you hear, only one of them truly leads to life, it's going to be harder, perhaps, to choose that way. Much easier to follow the other way, to follow others, perhaps, who are going along that way. The wide, the broad road, perhaps, is more popular more, pop, more preferable perhaps to our own sinful state because it's, hey, it's all about what we can do. The philosophy of life is about you can achieve it. You can get there in your own efforts through your good works. But the road to life, Jesus says, is found in, in him. It's found in trusting the one who has done the good works for us. So this is the claim of Jesus. But, but is it true? Is this one sole voice among many true? If many enter the wide gates, but only few the small gates, how do we know it really does lead to life? Jesus makes this big claim. The claim of exclusivity of the truth means that everyone else must be liars. And so Jesus goes on to tell us that. He says, watch out, verse 15, watch out for the false prophets. He warns us that there will be many who will be teaching what they say is truth, but actually they're lies. It's lies dressed up as truth. He describes them, verse 15, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. When I was a kid, my sister had this little doll that told the Red Riding Hood story. You had it applied this way, and there was little red riding hood and her red cape, the hood. And then if you turned her upside down and pulled a dress over her head or something, there was the grandma that she was going to visit. But then you tipped over the grandma's hood, and on, on the other side was the nasty wolf who came to eat. And of course, the wolf is there, dressed up in grandma's clothing, there to deceive the little girl so he can eat her. 
The Bible uses the sheep wolf language a lot. The sheep is a cute, cuddly, vulnerable, but gullible animal. But the wolf is this nasty creature, just bent on killing. But he does it in a disguised way. Teaching what they believe is to be true. It can be disguised as good, appealing, attractive. Offering life. But it leads to destruction. And those who present it will be dressed up like the grandmother, nice and and cute with big ears and big teeth. But they come across as knowledgeable perhaps. They're wise, like Mr. Worldly Wiseman. They can be trusting, charming. But they just spread lies that lead to death. Wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. They look safe. They're teaching attractive. But it's denying the gospel. It denies the grace of Jesus Christ. And so I wonder who is it that Jesus perhaps is thinking about as he talks uh, about this stuff there on that mountain. Well, of course, those who are the teachers, the prophets of the day, were the religious leaders, the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they were the ones who were wise in people's eyes. They were the ones who had studied the Bible. They, of course, should know the truth. They are the ones that everybody else listened to and looked up to and followed, even. But Jesus says, this is the test to know whether they are actually telling the truth. Verse 16. He says, by their fruits, you will recognize them. By their fruit, by their lifestyle, by their behavior in response to what they believe. If they teach what is good, then they will produce good. You can discern truthfulness by if their teaching matches what is written. And he goes on to explain the metaphor, doesn't he? He says, do do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? Or fig trees from thistles. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruits, but a bad tree bears bad fruits. A good tree cannot bear bad fruits, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruits. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruits, you will recognize them. Thorn bushes and thistles only produce bad stuff or certainly not nutritious things to eat. Even if you're not a gardener, you probably can tell the difference between what is good and what is bad, maybe. I know in our garden, our na- both our neighbours have apple trees that hang over our garden and the great thing is, we have permission, if apples fall into our garden, then we can have them and keep them. And so Gethin and I sometimes head out into the garden and we pick up the fruits And I have to tell him the difference between what is good and what is bad. And if the fruit, of course, is rotten, it's full of insects and worms and things, and it's in a bad state, it's bad fruit, you can't eat it. But imagine that you found an apple like that still hanging on the tree. It's not just the fruit that's bad, it's the whole tree that's bad. That tree needs to be cut down, thrown into the fire. Fruit that is bad is because fruit is bad because the tree is bad. And so, was the fruit? What about the fruit of the religious leaders? Was it bad or was it good? Well, as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus points to it. He highlights it. The religious leaders teach 
that it's all about your own righteousness. That life, that being made right with God, being in his kingdom is about obeying the law, keeping the rules. Not just the rules in the Bible, but these additional rules that we have created to, to help you. Salvation is through self-righteousness, not the righteousness of Jesus. And so if the tree trunk of the religious leaders is filled with self-righteousness, then we should expect self-righteous fruits. And that's what we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 6, they are those who stand on street corners praying publicly so everyone can see them being proud, looking down on those who don't. They are those who gain praise for themselves rather than pointing it to God. Is that good fruit? If believing that life is found in following the rules, in doing religious activities, then it might sound attractive, actually, appealing, because we're in control. It means we can see what we've done. It means we feel good about ourselves because we do good things and, and we think we're earning brownie points with God. It's a, we probably prefer that way. We like to earn things. We want to earn our salvation. But Jesus says it's bad fruit. And actually, he says it leads to death. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, he has a whole chapter where he's just um, judging the false teachers. He says in verse 23, chapter 23, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. They are the rulers, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But Jesus says, do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Verse 4. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their, how do you say it again? Phylacteries. Phylacteries <laughs> wide and their tassels and their garments long. They love the place of honour of banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Then Jesus says in verse 13, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! Then listen to this. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. There we have those who are in authority, the teachers of the law, the teachers, the prophets. They teach the kingdom of heaven is about obeying the law. But their fruit is pride, arrogance, being judgmental. And those who follow, they're not entering the kingdom of heaven, they're on the road, the wide, broad road to destruction. So Jesus says, watch out, watch out for false prophets. And of course there are false prophets still today. There are those who still teach that salvation is through your effort, through your good works. Legalism, following the law, keeping the rules, do good deeds, participate in religious activities. But of course they deny grace. They deny it's through Jesus. 
even famous false gospels like the prosperity gospel, in one way is still a gospel of works. If you do these things, if you give your money, you will have a good life. If you don't, then there's something wrong with you. You've done something wrong. It's a gospel of works. But I wonder if perhaps people in our circles can be guilty of preaching a poverty gospel. Not a prosperity gospel, but a poverty gospel. That the more hard your Christian life is, the more you suffer as a Christian, the more God is pleased with you. Still a gospel of works. And of course, every other religion will teach it's about your effort. It's about doing your good works. This morning, the end of Ramadan, walking down Morden Road, and there were men and boys all over the place, all heading down to Stanley Road Mosque. A month of fasting, hoping, praying that they've done enough that God will be pleased with them. It's very easy for us to slip into that kind of thinking that, that we are on the right road because we do the right stuff. Rather than doing the right stuff because we're already on the road because we've trusted completely in Christ. Tell me, how would you answer this question? How do you know you are going to heaven? If your answer is, because I'm a good person, or because I go to church, or because I I don't do anything really, really bad, or even because I believe in God, although he's not a big part of my life then we've not entered through the narrow gates. We're denying that it's about Jesus. And this is what Jesus has taught in the Sermon on the Mount, that it's about him. Think right back to chapter 5, those Beatitudes that we looked at a couple of years ago. Chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who see their sinfulness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, those who recognise their inability to save themselves. They will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, those who don't boast in themselves, those who see others themselves as bad as other people. It's they who will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not their own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. They are the ones who will be filled. Life is found not in ourselves, but in trusting Jesus. Jesus tells the Pharisees later on again in Matthew that John, John the Baptist, came to you and he showed you the way of righteousness, but you didn't believe him. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, they did. They saw their sin. They saw they couldn't do it themselves. They believed in Jesus. But the Pharisees, they saw it, but they did not repent. It is him who saves, not the law. The law was there to show our sinfulness, to show our need for a saviour. Jesus took our sin on the cross. He died for it. And in his resurrection, he's given us his righteousness. He who had no sin became sin so that we may have the righteousness of God. 
And through his life, we get life. I love the words of Paul in Romans 8 where he says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And here we see the fruit of Jesus. What is his fruit? Can we trust his fruit? Life, a perfect life lived, a man who never sinned, a man who completely obeyed his heavenly Father. What more convincing fruit do you need than a man who died, even for his enemies? So Jesus has showed us to be careful, to watch out for the false prophets. The warning is there because if we listen to them and follow them, we end up on the wrong road. And Jesus goes on and he tells us this, that believing in the false prophets will lead us away from the kingdom of heaven. Away from the presence of Jesus. What's that warning of false prophets? Warning of false professions. Take a look down at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Shocking, quite stark words from the lips of Jesus. He says there will be many who will profess to know God, to believe that they are in the kingdom of heaven. But on that last day, when they stand before Jesus, will be sent away. He doesn't know them. They're not in relationship with him. If the false prophets are those who deceive others, by teaching self-righteousness. The false professors are those who claim the kingdom of God through their own self-righteousness themselves. And many will point to their verbal profession. Lord, Lord. They believe in God. They maybe even know the gospel message, but it hasn't changed their hearts. They recognize he existed. They will like his teaching but they're not prepared to commit to him. James warns us that you believe that there is one God? Well, great. Even the demons believe that. We can believe in God, but yet not trust in him and not obey him. But hold on, Jesus then goes on, doesn't he? And he talks about those who do seem to obey him. He says, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons and perform merry miracles? There are people here doing miraculous signs. Surely they're in the kingdom of heaven. But works without faith is still dead. Anybody can say, Lord, Lord, did we not go to church? Lord, did we not give our money to charity? 
Did we not read our Bibles and pray and, and follow your morality? Surely these are good things. And of course they are good things, but doing religious stuff does not equate to saving faith. And the New Testament warns us that there will be those who will even perform miracles, but yet do it in the power of Satan. There are those who deny the grace of Jesus Christ. The good that you do is not an entry requirement. Rather, it is evidence, it is fruit of what is already there through faith. Jesus tells them, those who enter the kingdom of heaven, verse 21, who are they? Well, they are those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. The Father's will is not to keep all the rules, because that's impossible. Nor is it to mechanically do religious things. No, it is to believe in his Son. It is to have relationship with him through faith. Now, of course, that includes a public profession. Paul tells us in Romans that if you declare with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For it's the heart that you, it's in the heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Of course, we still profess Christ, but we're professing Him, trusting Him. His righteousness, his death, his resurrection. He is the one who gives us forgiveness because he is the one who's done it. And by believing in him, we then go on living with Jesus as our Lord. He's in charge. We submit and we obey him. There was a vicar who was caught saying that doesn't really believe all this stuff about Jesus. He just teaches it every week. It's just his chosen career. He professes the Bible, but he doesn't believe it. I talk to too many people who acknowledge Jesus, who even do religious activities. Just this week someone said they believe, but it doesn't go any further than that. There's no personal faith. There's no willingness to give their life to Jesus. Now, of course, this can sometimes make us a little bit nervous. We can end up thinking, well, what about me? <laughs> will I be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven? Or will I be sent away on that last day? What does it mean to do the Father's will? Well, friends, I think if you are concerned, then in one way it's a good I think it means, in one sense, that we are trusting. We need to remember that Jesus isn't trying to make it difficult. He's not trying to trick us. When he says that few find the small gate which leads to life, it's not because it's hidden away in the corner somewhere. It doesn't mean you have to be clever to try and find out, to figure out what the key is. But Jesus says that simply your profession of your faith is proved out through a life of obedience. It means that we're trusting in Christ and his righteousness rather than our own righteousness. We're not perfect. 
we still sin. And that's why it's all about Jesus. Alison and I and our boys like to go for walks. And sometimes as we walk along the road, we come to gates. Sometimes we come across what they call a kissing gate. Yes. Very small, very narrow. Only one person can get through it at a time. And so if we are there with our pram and our bags, then we can't get through it. We've got all this stuff. But then sometimes next to the kissing gate is a nice big broad wide gate for vehicles to go through. And so you can open that gate far wide. You can take the whole family through all at the same time. Prams, bags, everything. The warning for us is that if we live our lives collecting all of our good works together in our backpack, thinking that it will all lead us to life, we come to the gates, we'll find ourselves we can't get through the small gates because we've got all this stuff. We can't bring our gifts, our good works We can't bring the things that we think will please God because we can't get through the gate. The road is too narrow, we'll fall off it. We can't produce the tickets of our own righteousness to present to God. To walk through the small gate along the narrow road, it means that we come empty-handed. As the old hymn says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. How do we know we'll be in heaven? Lord, Lord, it's all about you. I trust in you. It's not about my righteousness. It's about Jesus' righteousness. Enter through the narrow gate. Trust in him rather than yourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for these warnings. We thank you for your invitation to come to you, to come through the small narrow gate, which is through your way, the only way. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've showed us that you are the way, the truth, and the light, that we cannot come to the Father except through you. But Father, we're so sorry that so often we'd rather go our own way. We'd rather take the broad road. Because it means we can feel good about ourselves. We can present our good works. But Lord, help us to remember and to know that our good works are are rubbish. Are nothing. We'll never be good enough. And help us to rejoice in the Lord Jesus. Because he has done it all for us. That it's about his righteousness. And as we enter the kingdom of heaven, as we come and stand before you, we can be bold, we can be confident, because it's not about us, but all about him. Help us, Lord, to enter the narrow, small gate and walk the narrow path, following you, and help us to do that. Amen.